Our Old Testament reading is Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 28. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Our sermon text is from Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. Our great God, we bless your name as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We bow before you, and 
we ask that you would uh, be pleased to continue to exalt the excellencies of your name as you show us our King, the Lord Jesus, as the one who alone gives life, the one who was accounted as nothing in this world, and in this way uh, shows us uh, that this world is so terribly wrong. Yeah, but we acknowledge, Lord, that the wrongheadedness continues to assail us. And so we ask that you would orient our hearts aright and to cling to Christ and to yearn to be like him, to long for the day when we will be made perfectly like him and behold you face to face. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have a lot of hopes and aspirations for our children. At least I've found that I do. Oftentimes I find myself hoping for them things that I either missed out on or that they might avoid. Uh, things that I fell into. I use my own experience to kind of map out what I think a successful and thriving life might look like. So I hope they cultivate the gifts God has given them and, and use them unto his glory. I hope they take their education seriously. I hope they are good neighbors to those around us and that they can consider others more than themselves. I don't often find myself thinking, I hope that they're poor. <laughs> I hope that they are constantly crying. <laughs> I hope that they're lowly. I hope that they're hungry and thirsty. Those are the sort of strange pronouncements that we meet in the first half of these Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, lowly, not one of the great ones. <laughs> Hungry, thirsty, lacking, mm -hmm. desiring. And it's when Christ says that this is actually a portrait of thriving, <laughs> it strikes us as strange. Mm -hmm. We said last week that Jesus Christ has come to bring true blessing. And that true blessing is to be found only in him. And strangely, these pronouncements show us what it means to be near unto and participating in true blessing. These statements here are the human face of that tree by a stream. <laughs> We hear that arboreal image, a tree by a stream, and we think, beautiful, maybe I'll paint a landscape. And then Jesus tells us what that tree looks like in terms of a human being, and it's poor, mourning, lowly, hungry. And we pointed out that this is simultaneously something that Jesus does in us. Indeed, only he can do this in us. Agreed? But it's also something that he teaches counterintuitively to desire from him. He teaches us counterintuitively to start to desire these things from him. Because we take him at his word. That indeed this is life. And we would have life from his hand. 
Those things are important to remember as we embark here upon the sermon proper. There's other important things that we need to remember as we go through this Sermon on the Mount. We said that the kingdom of heaven in this world is primarily on display in Christian character and subsequently Christian conduct, not in circumstances. There's other elements to the kingdom, such as Jesus protecting us, providing for us. That indicates his reign. That he's uniquely interested in his church's well-being, protecting her, providing for her. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount as a vision for the kingdom of heaven in this world, you're struck that it's primarily setting forth Christian character and Christian conduct. And that order is also important. Character producing conduct. And we should go back one stage further too, right? It's coming to Christ... <laughs> And then being conformed into his character, which then yields Christian conduct. Don't mistake that order. It's really important to get that order right. Come to Christ. <laughs> Do not go about configuring your conduct to somehow make other people believe that you have a good character such that perhaps you can deceive yourself into thinking that Christ has accepted you. No, run to Christ, be conformed to him by the wonderful work of his spirit in your inner person, which then mysteriously, by participation in his life, yields good and beautiful conduct. The Lord in the Sermon on the Mount is going to correct a lot of bad notions about what true religion is. People are constantly getting this wrong. What is true religion? Go out and poll a hundred people. What is true religion? You're going to hear answers that would have been common in Jesus' day. True religion is primarily rituals. It's not. <laughs> Jesus says it is decidedly not. It is decidedly not primarily rituals. This is even plainer now in the time of the gospel than it was in the time of the law. Now, we have rituals, make no mistake, but they're just a couple of them. <laughs> and they're not very ostentatious. Gospel worship is very simple, very unassuming, very basic. But these rituals are not the heart of the matter. They serve the heart of the matter. We can also insist more carefully, true religion is not first and foremost concerned with proper actions. Approaching religion in this way has awful consequences. This is how the religious leaders of the day approach religion. Long prayers long fasts, public displays of good works. This is a similar version of Christianity to which undoubtedly many of you have been exposed. Most people are taught that Christianity is primarily about not having sex before you get married, not doing drugs or drinking alcohol, not watching or listening to bad music and movies, so on and so forth. 
Again, Christianity has much to teach us about good and true and beautiful conduct, but that's not the first thing. That's not the heartbeat of the thing. And if you make it the heart of the thing, if you make it the first thing, you make Christianity something ugly, something that it's not, something that's going to kill people. We've already seen what Christianity is really about. It's about coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. It's about knowing God, seeing God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Or to use Matthew's dominant picture, it's about bowing before the true king in whom every blessing has been opened unto sinners. That's Christianity. It trickles in all sorts of other things, but that's the heartbeat. It's Christ as king. It's God made known unto a world that has despised him. And it's God made known in grace and mercy and love extended unto you, enemies. <laughs> Not those who have gotten it together, but those who have been brought near to participate in true blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ we come to Christ and he begins a change. That coming to Christ is the first flickers of that change. All of a sudden, I don't serve myself. I serve someone who is way more worthy than I am. <laughs> Christ. And walking with him, that change continues to grow and to swell as we continue to grow in our understanding of just how dreadful we are and just how wonderful he is in so many different ways. And this slowly, painfully changes character and subsequently conduct as we come to know him more and more. Notice how these first four, Christ pronounces blessing, not even upon actions, but just postures. These postures are blessed. He doesn't say, blessed are those who keep the Sabbath. They kept the Sabbath. The religious leaders kept the Sabbath with zeal. He doesn't say, blessed are those who tithe. They tithed. Meticulously, they tithed. What does he say? Blessed are the poor, the broken, the lowly, the hungry. Those are postures. The innermost core of the person. They all sit right at the heart of a person. And they're more important than the actions in a fundamental sense, aren't they? Isn't that self-evident? That's what Christ unveiled about the religious leaders. He says, you keep the Sabbath, but you hate everyone. <laughs> so even your Sabbath keeping is cruelty. The heart is more important than the action. You tithe, but you're arrogant as all get out. So even your tithing is an occasion for your pride. He says it doesn't matter if you're doing the right things in a manner of speaking. Your heart is all wrong. And thus what you're doing is all wrong. The posture is more fundamental than the action. Are you tracking with me? Do you see how it's plain right here? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the mourning. 
Blessed are the lowly. Blessed are the hungry and the thirsty. We can pause just for a second and marvel at the Lord Jesus, who not only did all the right things, but did them from a heart of perfect love for his father. Consider how mixed your motives are. <laughs> Considered the tangled web of human motivation and then marvel at the sterling perfection of the heart of Christ who not only did what was right, but did them from a heart of pure love for his father. Up for the ill deserving. Truly this, the wonderful king. Jesus can pronounce blessings upon these postures because in a very real sense, he is this person in perfection. <laughs> He is the one who walked in humble reliance upon the Spirit, even as the Christ, the King. He is the one who wept over sin and misery everywhere on display around him. He is the one who, though he was the Lord of glory, was gentle and lowly. He is the one who lived on every word which proceeded from his father's mouth, hungering and thirsting, not for bread and water, but for righteousness. I think it's fair to say that this face which emerges out of these beatitudes is very much the image of Christ in this world. It's the image of God, mm. astonishingly. And it's the image into which we're being conformed as he makes us participants in true and everlasting life. But it's a strange and counterintuitive image, isn't it? Who wants to be poor? Who wants to be weeping? Who wants to be lowly? Who wants to be hungry? Let's challenge us. The fact that there's something repulsive about these things to us, and yet they're set forth as life, clues us in that something's wrong with us. Mm. Something's wrong with this world. That this is not going to be an easy posture for us to adopt. So again, we can dispense with this notions that this is something we work up in ourselves to participate in blessing. We are incapable. <laughs> the flesh is repelled by these things. And so Christ must facilitate these things in us if we or to participate in the blessing that he here envisions. So let's look at these first four. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, to be poor means not to have. Right? It's the definition of being poor. I don't have. And not just that. I don't have that which is most necessary for me. I lack that. I am in need of that. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Thomas Watson puts it like this. Poor in spirit means that those upon whom God shows mercy are brought to a sense of their sin. And seeing no goodness in themselves, they despair of themselves and cast themselves wholly upon 
his provision of mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the first difficult mercy God extended to you? He showed you your true condition? You had been laboring under this delusion of wealth. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm thriving. No, you're not. You're dying. You lack everything essential. Everything necessary. In fact, your evaluative standards are so far up, you don't even know how to ask the question. Am I well? <laughs> you say, yeah, I'm well. I have a job. I'm well. I have a family. I'm well. I stand in high regard in the eyes of others. All of a sudden, God, merciful, I'm not well. Things are wrong fundamentally with my soul before my maker. I keep doing these things that I hate. I'm ashamed of. Things are not well. I'm destitute. I'm poor. I'm wretched. I'm ashamed. It's a very disorienting process. Can you remember it? Going from all is well to things are not well. Things are dreadfully unwell. It's that picture of Christian at the outset of Pilgrim's Progress. He's living in a town, idyllic. Wife, kids, fine. He reads in this book, things are not well with you. And he's inconsolable all of a sudden. This is the first mercy of God opening our eyes to the true nature of our condition. Have you seen them? Your rags? Your spiritual rags? Have you seen them? That even though you've maybe convinced other people that you're good, the secret places of your heart, you entertain thoughts that are shameful. Were they projected on the heavens? You would want to crawl in a hole and die. That's to say nothing of those actions which you do in secret that you convince yourself that nobody really knows. Not all is well. Have you seen that? That you are spiritually destitute, bankrupt. If you've seen it, rejoice. Rejoice. For blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not those who have. It's not those who have. It's not those who have. But it's those whom God has shown they have not. Adam should have stayed naked. He made his state work by sewing together fig leaves. Have you seen your true poverty? If you have, praise God. But it's not something that just starts at the beginning for us. This is not a posture that we knew once upon a time as Christians. Oh, yes, I remember when I was poor in spirit, but no longer. No. It is the whole Christian life lived under the truth that left to myself, I am spiritually destitute. This is what Paul says, isn't he? Romans 7. For I know that no good thing dwells in unbelievers. No, me. Me. I know that no good thing dwells in me. Do you know that? Don't give that up. Don't give that up. Because it's what God uses to humble us. And in a sight and a sense of that ongoing dreadful reality of sin, we 
cast ourselves upon the mercy of God, upon the promise, the good news of the gospel that says it's not to those who have, but those who do not have that belongs the kingdom of heaven. You do not receive clothes and food from Christ and then walk away from him thinking, I'm fine, I'm good. The branch never ceases being utterly dependent upon the vine. For the branch to think I was once poor apart from the vine, but now having tasted of the vine's life, I don't need the vine, is to set the branch up to die. This is a posture, a reality, a realization which doesn't just attend the beginning of the Christian life, but is that fundamental posture of the Christian until Christ returns. Because that's how long we'll wrestle with sin. The bankruptcy which sits at our hearts. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The truth of our indwelling sin is not what disqualifies us from participation in Christ. It is the rejection of that truth which distances us from our Lord. Mm. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mark how that postures us to rejoice rightly. To rejoice rightly in Christ. <laughs> The one who was rich beyond all telling, who became poor to make us participants in his riches. Is there any faith in you? Any hope? Any love? In humble adoration, give thanks to God. Not that he has made you better than others, but that he has had mercy upon you, a ruined and lost sinner. Amen, right? I mean... That's cool. <laughs> May the Lord grant us all the eyes to see our native poverty, such that we cast ourselves solely upon his inexhaustible riches and rejoice in him alone. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What mourning does he pronounce blessed? This is a strange blessing, isn't it? It sounds almost like a complete contradiction. Happy are those who are sad. <laughs> Wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. I would be a very bad husband if I walked into the kitchen and found my wife sobbing and asked, please tell me the good news that has just arrived in our household. What morning does he pronounce blessed here? Well, first and foremost, it's the morning that's connected to the poverty of the verse before, isn't it? It's mourning for the sad state of sin. The tragic reality of sin continuing to cling even to my heart. Continuing to make its presence known in this world such that anyone can look out and say, not all is well. Things are broken at a fundamental level. Things are imminently mournable. This is the mourning that the prophet Joel called for long ago. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, 
For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. We know what it means and feels like to be heartbroken. That rending of hearts. Have you ever sobbed uncontrollably? This is a desperate situation. Usually it's because some fundamental reality has been displaced. You just sob uncontrollably. A heart has been shattered and tears are the residue. Have you felt this? I hope you haven't, but I trust you probably have. Because not all is well. prophet says sin sin seen rightly is worth howling over mm-hmm. sobbing over it's one of the hardest realities to get your mind around as a Christian because we sin every day we convince ourselves that they're just minor infractions. They're not cosmic acts of treason against one who is infinitely and eternally good. It's a perplexing state. I trust that just as a true glimpse of Christ would yield in your heart unbroken and unending praise. A true glimpse of our sin would yield unending howling. No, in a sense, we could say God is very kind not to open our eyes to the true nature of that. But let's not be deceived. It's not because it's not mournable. <laughs> it's because he's so kind to us. But Christ is the hard mercy that God brings is that he gives us a true sight and sense of, of sin and its heinousness, his true heinousness, not as these minor social infractions, not as those pedestrian sins, which we just, we kind of like them. They're kind of nice, kind of delicious. Isn't she awful? You indulge in that gossip. Cruelty, scratch that ish. Kind of like feed on them. God in his mercy has opened our eyes to something of the heinousness of sin. Where? How? The cross. The cross. Do you want to know what sin looks like? It's the Lamb of God hung naked on a tree. That's the veil pulled back. On all sin. There it is. That's what it looks like. That's the horrible face of it. Blessed are those who mourn, who see, who've seen something of this. Something of this dreadful condition. There's this poignant scene in John Williams' novel about John Stoner. Do you know this novel? It's unfortunately named Stoner. People always get the wrong idea about what the novel's about. It's not about that. It's about an English professor named John Stoner. (laughs) This English professor served at the University of Missouri during World War II. 
And when World War II breaks out, the students are triumphant, exultant. They want to go to war. They're excited to go to war. The entire student body, jubilant that they're going to participate in this war to end all wars. But there's one old professor who's thrust into heartbreaking grief because he lived through World War I. He can see past the triumphant faces of students who just want to be a part of something bigger. He can look past the excitement, the frills, and he can see the heart of the matter, an entire generation marching off to slaughter. And the main character finds him inconsolably weeping in his office, even as the university breaks into triumphant shouts of joy. They're excited in ignorance. He weeps in sight of the truth. Sin is war against God. It's war against its maker, the one who is infinite in goodness, in holiness, in righteousness, in love. The only proper response to sin is grief. It's not excuses. It's not minimizing it. If we saw our sin squarely, we would be dissolved into tears. Blessed are those who mourn. Can you mourn your sin? Not for its consequences. Not for the fact that you're going to fall in the esteem of others. Psalm 51 is marvelous in this regard. Right there in the, the superscription. This psalm was written upon the occasion of David's sin against Bathsheba. Right there. Plunges in the esteem of others. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. We won't acknowledge our sin because we think people are going to think bad about us. We won't engage with our sin because we're terrified of its consequences. All of that is distracting nonsense. The heinousness of your sin is that you have rebelled against an infinitely good God who sustains your very being in the moment of your transgression. For a Christian, it's doubly worse because you've seen plainly his goodness. His love, his mercy on display in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord, once more showing himself to be this blessed man, entered into Jerusalem. And he glimpsed the hardness of heart on display in sin. He did not call curses down. He did not denounce them. What did he do? He wept. Mm -hmm. He wept at the sad state of sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I want to say one more word about mourning. It is mourning about sin. It's mourning about our sin. It's mourning about the sad state of sin in this world. But it's also mourning about misery. Misery is... One of the plainest signs that all is broken. All is not well. I remember sitting in the doctor's office when 
Samantha had miscarried. And this well-meaning doctor looked at me and told me, these things just happen, as it were. And I, I wish I had had my bearings in that moment. I would have responded, I assure you, ma'am, uh, these things do not just happen. These things are proof that the earth is broken and groaning and waiting for the return of the king to make it all right again. Waiting for the return of the king who is the only one who can offer and give a substantive enough comfort in the face of true ache, in the face of misery. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Jesus says, I am the comforter. He says, I'm going to send to you another comforter. And on the day he returns, we're going to know the full comfort of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as he wipes away every tear from the eyes of his people who look at the state of this world and say, not all is well. It's broken. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make it right again. Are you mourning? You're mourning your sin, mourning the sad state of sin and misery that has writ the world over. Set your hope upon the only one who can truly comfort the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much that can numb us to grief, distract us from grief. There's only one who can comfort the grieving. And that's Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered sin, death, and the world, such that he can say, I'm making all things new, and I give true comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? Meekness, as Calvin describes it, is a mild and gentle disposition. As J.C. Ryle describes it, it's a patient and contented spirit. But better than a definition is a portrait. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who presents himself as gentle and lowly, staggeringly, as the true king, meek and mild. This is how Isaiah presented him, like a lamb, led to the slaughter who opened not his mouth. Why? Because it was how he was going to bring about his father's glory and the salvation of sinners. This is how he presents itself. I am gentle and lowly. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who welcomed children welcomes this woman who's cast herself at his feet, bathing him in this perfume while the others look on disgust. He says, no, what she's done is a beautiful thing. Look on as this woman is bathing Christ in her tears. Why? 
because in Christ and in Christ alone was true forgiveness for the unspeakable things that she had done. And so she loved much. The one who is meek says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How contrary this is to our thinking. The meek inherit the earth? Would the meek conquer the world? No, the mighty conquer the world. The powerful take the kingdoms. We think unless you go out and conquer, you'll be left with nothing. We got no time for lambs. <laughs> so we dress ourselves up as lions. Machiavelli made that point. In the prince, it is the armed prophets who conquer. It is the unarmed prophets who are destroyed. And the church shamefully says yes and amen. Right? Nobody else gets that sense these days? The church has very little tolerance for the call into lamb likeness. She's baptized her heart's delight in lion likeness. Nobody else gets that sense? Nobody else gets that sense? Well, I'm the pastor and I've got that sense, so you got to sit here and listen to me. <laughs> it seems like the church has very little tolerance for this call into lamb likeness. But if we have very little tolerance for the call on the lamb likeness, if the call on the lamb likeness offends, are we sure it isn't the lamb who offends? How shall we conquer? How did Christ conquer? How did Christ come to possess the world? By dying. In an otherworldly display of love. As a lamb. How shall we conquer? John tells us, this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith quiet, very unassuming, at its very heart, weak. Isn't that what faith is? An acknowledgement of utter dependence upon another? It entails an acknowledgement of insufficiency? It entails an acknowledgement that another, another, Another has all that I need? <laughs> this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The quiet yes and amen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would anyone see his self-giving sacrifice as weakness? It looks like weakness. The cross looks like weakness, and in a sense it is. But unless you can look past the weakness and see on display the power of God, you've not yet seen the cross rightly. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Christ crucified, the power of God. Last, blessed are the hungry. To be hungry, to be thirsty is to need and to crave the basics for life. Food and water. You can go quite some time without food, except in my house. Everybody gets cranky around noon. <laughs> Not that long without food. You can go only a little bit without water. 
But if you take them away entirely, what happens? That's right, you die. Mm. These are fundamental needs. Hunger, thirst. They're indicating a desire for that which is most basic. But he doesn't say hunger and thirst for food, hunger and thirst for water. He says hunger and thirst for righteousness. As strange as it sounds, there's something more basic than food and water that human beings need. Righteousness. That's very strange. Agreed? Very strange. Jesus says, blessed are those who desire righteousness. And then he says, they will be satisfied. What does he mean? First, consider how deeply we long for a righteous king. Why do stories of Aragorn and Arthur thrill our hearts and dominate my illustrations? (laughs) Even Faramir... That good steward was in awe of Aragorn, bowed the knee to the good and true and righteous king. Even Lancelot, unmatched in valor and power and skill, bowed to one greater than himself in Arthur. They hungered and thirst for a truly righteous king. Our great God says, this is that king. This is him. The one whom Arthur faintly flickered forth on display in Jesus Christ. The longing for a righteous king is satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. Just because his kingdom is not of this world, just because he hasn't set up shop on some literal hill, do not mistake that fact for the fact that he is the true king of this world. He's never setting up shop like that. But he is the true king. And your longing for righteousness, to see a righteous leader, to see a righteous king, to see a righteous husband, it's right there in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that helps us because I got to tell you, you're going to continue to be disappointed with the leaders of this world. You're going to be disappointed with your godly husbands. You're going to be disappointed with your godly wives. You're going to be disappointed with godly children if you look to satisfy your craving for righteousness in them. The only satisfaction for righteousness is the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our king, our husband, our brother, the joy of every longing heart. But we can further say that our satisfaction for righteousness is not just seeing him. It's also in being made like him. We want that, don't we? We want that, don't we? We see, we see that a substantive portion of my problems are because of my sin. (laughs) The beating heart of the chaos that attends my life is because of my sin. And so we can rejoice that Christ welcomes sinners 
We can rejoice that he can assure us that even our sins are going to be overcome for good. But we're still left longing for more. (laughs) Yes, that's wonderful, but can I please be done with this sin? I don't want to sin anymore. And he says, you're going to be satisfied. Now, in part, you get these little baby victories over sins that you thought were intractable. Some things you don't get victory over. And the things you don't get victory over properly orients you to the true day of satisfaction. The day of the return of the king. When he makes everything right. And a large part of that being made right will be being conformed perfectly to his image. Such that we'll be done with sin. That indwelling sin with which we continue to contend, which continues to humble us, it'll be gone. As all things will be configured in glory and righteousness and life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, for the king will return and make all things new. Join me in prayer. Our great God and Savior, we give you thanks for this king, this king who welcomes sinners, this king who assures us that he understands and knows the plight into which man had plunged themselves who assures us that he has been sent to make you known, O great God, in the welcome of sinners, the giving of faith and hope and love, and in the hope of righteousness as we look eagerly for his return. Sustain us, O Lord. Posture us in these ways that we might know blessedness. We ask in Christ, amen.